No. Podcast with Chad Ferguson. Now we're live with Kevin Davey. Uh, how's it going, Kevin? Very good. Very good. Kevin is a local actor, born and raised in England, but living in, in Alberta. Worked on um, uh, Hell on Wheels, been on Heartland, Winona Earp, uh, Black Belt in Jiu Jitsu, Black Belt in Karate. Um, what else have I missed? I think that's a good information. Um, I've got a bald head. Bald head, yeah. I'll, uh, here we go. Now you're on camera. Everyone can see your, uh, see your face. Uh, so what, uh, what brought you over to Canada? Uh, it was an aeroplane. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, next um, question. <laughs> no, um, uh, I was raised on American TV, American movies, and what have you. And so the North American lifestyle always appealed to me. Yeah. Um, but I had no real desire to live in the US. Okay. Um, and or, and because Canada is part of the same Commonwealth, we both celebrate the same Queen and what have you. You know, Canada was the natural choice. Yeah. yeah. And so, what was so different about Canada than England? England has got a lot of history. But it's very far behind the time in a lot of ways. Okay. Um, the main thing for me, I mean, there were there were several reasons why I wanted to make the move. But the main thing is, my son has cerebral palsy. He's in a wheelchair. Yeah. And um, I can distinctly remember there were there were many times where myself and my wife, I'd be on the back of the wheelchair, she'd be on the front of the wheelchair. We'd have to lift him up steps to get him into stores. Oh wow. Um, whereas and. If I'm right, I think I'm right when I say it only became law in England in 2006 for all public buildings to have disabled access. Wow, that is far behind. Exactly, exactly. I uh, I grew up with uh, uh, Hunter syndrome runs in our family. Uh, it's very rare. It's only about 8,000 families in the world that have it. Uh, I was one of the few in our family born without it, but my cousins that were born with it were in wheelchairs. Right. And they were born in the late 60s, early 70s. And even then, our, our schools just made access for them. They had a special school for them. It was, you know, they were well taken care of in our community. I think the difference is, uh, the easiest difference I can say, and forgive me, any Brits that are listening, <laughs> but um, the impression I got, the way I felt about it, was in England, um, they were uh, driven by the masses, you know, not the silent minority, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas here, uh, Canada, North America, tends to take everyone's needs into consideration rather than just the majority. Yeah. And as I say, for... You know, it was so difficult to get to access certain places for Josh, my son, and even public transit here. You know, the you've got the buses with the little ramps, and they lower the right, lower right. the hydraulics and what have you. He can get on the C train. He can get on. He can get in any building pretty much. Yeah. Um, the irony is, the only place he can't get in with ease is my house. So, <laughs> so basically, what I did is I built a big ramp so he can still stay because obviously his electric wheelchair are, is his legs. Yeah, yeah. You know, you take that away, and he you taken away his independence. Yeah. So I built a big old ramp so he can uh, swing by my place anytime he wants and chill awesome. with me. Yeah, yeah. So it, yeah. does he live with you still, or are you? No, no. He's uh, he's got his own place in Calgary. He has uh, caregivers that because he's very high functioning. He's yeah. actually at St. Mary's University doing a master's degree in English literature. Oh, wow. So he doesn't get his, thank God, he doesn't get his smarts from me. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he's he's as independent as a, 
I bet I suppose the best way to say it is he's as independent as a one armed man can be. Right. And what I mean by that is, you know, he's got very good use of his left hand, so he'll he'll shave or he'll he'll clean his teeth or he'll drive his electric wheelchair around or he'll eat so long as his food is cut up. Yeah. Because uh he's uh even though he's very high functioning, it's classed as uh spastic quadriplegia, so all four limbs are affected, but his left hand is is very functional, you know. Yeah, and he's a wizard on the keyboard. You know, so wow. he's always on the computer. It blows my mind how how people adapt. One of my really good friends in high school had cerebral palsy, and he was able. Uh, so it was basically, I think, from about uh, waist high down that right. was he was mostly affected, yeah. and from his chest and his shoulders, he would walk on crutches, and he just didn't like being in a wheelchair. Right. I think even back then, Steve Fonio asked him to. Um, not Steve Fonio. Was it Steve Fonio in the wheelchair that went across Canada? I honestly I want to say cannot was, remember. It was after Terry Fox. I think his name was Steve Fonio, and he wanted him to ride in a wheelchair, and he's like, absolutely not. Like, it could have made him, you know, famous, helped yeah. him out financially, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but he wanted no part of it. He's like, no, 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 I'm good on my crutches. I know I can't make it across Canada on my crutches. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there's, uh, uh, for us, it was it was no big deal. Like, it was, he didn't like when we packed him around, but he was mm. a little bit slower, so we'd pick him up, chuck him in the truck, yeah. and yeah, go. Yeah. But he'd get pretty mad at us. But it, it <laughs> It, it blows my mind how, um, you know, guys like me born really uh, with no ill effect, mm. um, do, I don't adapt nearly as easy as someone that has a, a handicap or a challenge in front of them. You know, I think they, uh, I mean, it's like Josh, for example, he was uh, two and a half months early. He was three pound when he was born. His lungs weren't working. They didn't think he would survive. But uh, um, Prems are notorious for being fighters. You know, yeah. uh, also when he's, um, I don't, it's, it's a very personal subject, but my wife was killed when we were living down in the south of Calgary, uh, by a drunk driver in a hit and run, oh. um, while she was actually on the sidewalk pushing our son in his wheelchair. Um, she turned her back on the oncoming vehicle to try to protect him. Um, so she was killed outright, but my son was also hospitalized, yeah. uh, in a coma for 11 days. Once again, life-threatening injuries that would have killed me or you, Right. you know, there's no doubt in my mind of that. But once again, he fought through it. He came out the other end and he's still with us as, as healthy as anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He wow. just, and he, he is, um, as I say, he, he, he's a normal He's 26 years old now. Yeah. I don't know where the hell that time's gone. But <laughs> he's 26 years old now, and he's a normal human being who just happens to be stuck in a body that doesn't work the same way as mine and yours. Right. You know? that That's what, uh, you know, especially in the 70s and probably even in the 80s, it's not... People just didn't understand the same way. Exactly, exactly. I had my cousins Hunter Syndrome, and they were just my cousins. It was no different than the cousins that walked or the Mm. cousins that weren't sick. They were just my cousins. They just happened to be in wheelchairs. And uh, so for us, we never really saw them as as different anyway. You know they're different, but you don't see them as different. And uh, our family never really treated them different either. They got in trouble the way the rest of us did. If they back-talked, they Mm. (laughs) they got their butts chewed out. Nothing nothing changed for them being in in a wheelchair having a disease compared and, to and that's kids. and that's the way it should be i mean it like once again i can remember myself and my wife you know we would be we would be out on the town or not out on the town but we'd be out in town or shopping whatever someone would see josh and they'd go ah oh, and they'd look at <laughs> and they'd look at me and linda my my wife and they'd yeah. say what's his name and we'd say well ask him right. you know i mean just because he's in a wheelchair doesn't mean he's deaf dumb blind and, <laughs> yeah. you know whatever <laughs> Yeah. But but as I say, it's people's uh, lack of understanding or lack of knowledge of 
people in that situation, you know? Right. So, which, you know, you, you can forgive them for that. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, and if they've never been around it, there's no point in being mad at them for not knowing. No, so. exactly. And we never were. We we yeah. thought it was quite amusing, to be honest. Yeah. So what what uh, what led him into a, a master's in, in English? Uh, he is um, a Shakespeare freak. Wow. He's absolutely a Shakespeare freak, and he's always wanted to be a writer. Yeah. Um, so um, he, because he's unable to work, I mean, you know, if he was going to work, it would be something limited. Yeah. Uh, maybe a greeter at a store or whatever. Um, so he just wanted to sort of like do this to enhance his writing ability, and it's something he's passionate about. He's now taken on an understudy in drama, or like under, um, not understudy, but he's majoring in English literature and he's minoring in uh, drama. Okay, I, I don't know if that's the right term or whatever. Yeah, and uh, me and his sister, and she's an amazing young woman as well. Uh, we went to see him in his first play the other day. Very so cool, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, the apple doesn't fall far from the I'll tree. I'll tell you what, someone else said that as well. But uh, <laughs> the difference is, like you know, Joshua's more into um, theatre. Yeah. Whereas, like, I'm more used to acting in front of the camera. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, I've got the utmost respect for theatre actors because, of course, if you do mess up on set, they can always say cut. Exactly. Whereas, yeah. like, acting in theatre is is acting without a net. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I Have do. Have you done anything? Um, I've done a couple of little things. I actually um, went down to L.A. several years ago now, and I actually ended up doing... Um, uh, a little comedy skit at the LA Comedy Club yeah. on, live on stage and there was a full audience and that was fun yeah. but that was only one scene you know uh, I've never done a full-blown play although I am a member of well I'm actually a member of four uh, four different unions I'm a member of ACTRA which is the um, TV and movie union here in Canada yeah. I'm also a member of Canadian Equity I'm also a member of British Equity, and I'm also a member of Screen Actors Guild. So I've got all four there. Yeah, is that so? Is that like Canada, US, and Britain? Is the Screen Actors yeah. Guild is the American? Union, yes, right? that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you done any work down there? I haven't. I um, I did have a zero, uh, an O one visa, which would have enabled me to work down there. Um, but the problem is. It's a little bit like Vancouver or Toronto or LA or New York. They will always draw from their pool of talent before yeah, yeah. they look at people who don't literally live there. Yeah. You know? So I have a, a. You're the third actor, Canadian actor that I've had on the the podcast. So I've been very lucky. But they talk at length about the difficulty in Alberta of getting oh, work. Man, right? I'll there's, tell you. there's our government out here. Maybe needs to do something to encourage them to film out here more because there's just you know we have. A plethora of backgrounds. I mean, yep. the best backgrounds in, in the world. Yeah. We've got all the topography. We've got all the topography. We've got the mountains. We've got the lakes. You know, we've got the cities. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, I was actually, I actually had an audition this afternoon. I was speaking to my agent about this, and I said the problem is. Alberta has got no problem bringing actors over from BC or from uh, Ontario. Yeah, but. Ontario and BC seem to have a problem with bringing actors over from Alberta. It's like the equalization payments, right? Oh, Alberta's good about giving those it's, out. It's, it's all to do with the tax breaks. You yeah. know, um, it's like, for example, um, BC or Vancouver, um, they will bring up the lead actors or whatever from LA or New York, and then they'll have the supporting and the smaller actors um, locally hired so they get tax breaks by 
giving jobs to locals. Right. I completely understand that. Yeah. But Alberta doesn't seem to stick to that. You know, they'll say, yeah, come on, come one, come all, come on. You know, we don't mind if we're taking jobs from the local actors. But the irony is there's a lot of really, really good acting talent right here in Calgary. Yeah, for sure. You know, in southern Alberta. Um, And (laughs) I'm a Canadian citizen as well as a British citizen. I'm a Canadian citizen and it just seems so unfortunate that metaphorically speaking, I can't even work next door, Mm. you know, in the next province over. I mean, I've always thought in in any walk of life, um, but obviously we're talking about acting right now, but I've always thought it should be the right person for the job, not just because he's local. I couldn't agree more. You know, the, it, it's it's difficult when you see that happening. I had buddies frustrating uh, out of uh, high school wanted to be firefighters, and at the time in BC, I grew up in BC, mm. and so at the time in BC, um, they were hiring mostly women. There wasn't enough women in there, and so they they changed the testing, and and which they probably didn't even need to. There was tons of women that had the ability, yeah, but yeah. they just needed to get women in sooner and and even out the numbers a little bit more. Mm. So my buddy got put off for, I think, eight years before he became a firefighter. And, like, he aced every single test, everything. Yeah. Like, he just, he was one of those guys and took forever to get him in there. But it was just because they needed to fill numbers somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and it's a little bit silly. I agree with you that the right person for the right job is is the only way it should be. Yeah, in, in all walks of life. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. yeah. yeah. And so you came over here, I think I said, or I heard, or read in 2006. Yeah, we moved here in 2006. My wife passed away in 2008. Um, In fact, uh, it's coming up on the 11th anniversary. It's at the end of April. Yeah. Um, Coming up on the 11th anniversary. But um, even then, when Linda was taken from me and the kids, you know, Calgary or southern Alberta, because I was living in Calgary then. I'm living in Airdrie now, kind of temporarily. But... um, We'd already fallen in love with the people. We'd already yeah. fallen in love with the city, and this was our home. Yeah. So even after my wife passed away, um, none of us wanted to go back to England. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I love England. I actually went back there with my daughter last year for the first time in the 12 years that we had been living here. And it really, because I was raised in Cornwall, which is a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. Um it just needs a roof. It's <laughs> a lot of rain. It rains a lot. Um, but it, it brought me a newfound appreciation of having been lucky enough to have been raised in such a beautiful area. Yeah. However, um, I'm a Canadian. You know, I, I love Canada. I love Canadians. I love the lifestyle. And this is my home. You know, I, I probably will go back to England um, a little more often to visit friends when finances allow, but Canada's my home. I'm, I'm English by birth, Canadian by choice. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I love Canada. I'm, I'm probably not as patriotic as some people, but I understand how great we have it here. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I really do. It's a beautiful country. The people are awesome. Yeah. You know, even yeah. our politics, is, as much as everyone complains, it's not that bad. Not compared, compared to, like, to some. Not go, compared go, to some. Go to India or yeah. China or, I mean, Korea. The, it's... We got really, really good here. Yeah. Even if you go south of the border, we got a little bit better than them. Yeah. Uh, but I always, uh, I'm amazed that people come here. One because of the weather. Maybe coming from Cornwall to uh, Airdrie is not that bad. The people <laughs> that come from like South America up to here, I'm like, yeah, and you get Australians and, and, <laughs> I know. and like, 
I, how much better? I've been to Australia. I spent a month there, and right. uh, I almost didn't come home. And I literally cried almost every day for a month after I did come home. I yeah. went from plus 30 to <laughs> minus 30. Uh, I missed it so bad when I got here. And it was good I came back, because literally like three months after I got back, when all the crying stopped, I met my wife. So right. <laughs> it yeah. was meant yeah. to be. Kismet. Was, yeah, Kismet. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I'm glad I, I moved back. But uh, yeah. yeah, it was a hard go to leave that kind of climate. And I mean, Australia has got some of the best people in the world, too. Like, they're just so nice over there. Yeah, 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 I agree. But there's too many things that can kill you over there. (laughs) You know what? I I kind of attribute it to, uh, I actually got bit by uh, a spider that we were out in the middle of, it was a, a cattle ranch. And so we're all lined up in front of the bus after two days at this cattle ranch. And we did all the cattle ranch hand stuff and stayed in the bunk rooms and that. And uh, I had my uh, flip-flops on before we got in the bus and we were lined up for a picture. And yeah. also I felt this enormous pain in my foot, like I'd been shot or stabbed. And I looked down and this tiny spider, I'm not even kidding, like the head of a pen, like just just little, yeah. comes scooting off my foot and it was black and a little white dot on his back. Still don't yeah. know what the spider was. Right. And so I go to our tour man, I was on a Kentucky tour, so I go to the tour manager, I'm like, hey, I just got bit by the spider. And he's like, oh... I'm like, oh, what? (laughs) He goes, well, we're about four or five hours from Sydney, and there's nothing in between us and them, so maybe take some Advil, and we'll just kind of keep track of how you are. (laughs) And I'm like, holy Dinah. So, yeah, I I got bit. But when you're in the cities, like, there's not much of that around. I think they kind of advertise it, maybe to keep the population or the immigration down. Yeah, (laughs) I suppose suppose if you're in the outback, it's a little bit different than being in a city, yeah. yeah. Like, we don't get many bears or moose or killers, and we got killer stuff in Canada. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. Uh, we talked about when my kids were maybe, I don't know, four and five years old around that age of moving to Australia, mm. and then my wife started watching all that stuff, babies getting bit by spiders, and, yeah, and, and then she's like, I'm out. We're stolen not. by dingoes, wild dogs and stuff, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go, yeah. Uh, but yeah, unlikely in any major city that you're going to find that yeah, stuff. True, yeah, true, true. So in... Uh, uh, when did you start your acting career? Because you didn't come over here as an actor, did you? No, I'm a carpenter by trade. Um, but carpentry was always a means to an end. It was just to keep the roof over our heads, pay the bills and what have you. Um, to be honest, it was my wife's death that made me change my uh, outlook on life. Yeah. You know, me and Linda, she was my first true love. She was my best friend. We were together for 26 years. We were married for 21 um, and when she passed away, you know, I realized, you know, none of us know how long we've got and life can be right. taken like that. Yeah. Um, and I thought, you know, if you've got a dream, it's a sin not to chase it. Yeah. And, th- and the fact is I'd always wanted to act, but I'd never really had the balls or the, um, or the opportunity to yeah. do it. And uh, after Linda passed away, you know, it it took me quite a while to get over the grief. And obviously, like, you know, it still affects me and the kids now, even 11 years later. Um, But um, it just, uh, after I got over the worst of the grief and the loss, I thought to myself, well, I don't want to be on my deathbed wishing I had. So screw it. I'm going to try it. Yeah. Because, you know, if you you don't try, you'll never know. Had you talked to Linda about it before? Uh, Like, while you guys were together? together yeah i think she knew that i'd always i i don't know if i specifically said to her i want to be an actor um but i mean i'm sure she knew because i mean she knew me better than anyone anyway i'm sure she knew that i would love to have been yeah but um as i say i mean i didn't really have the balls or the opportunity 
until I made that decision. I can remember I gave an interview and someone, uh, the interviewer said to me, you know, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to go into acting? And I said, well, it doesn't matter what your dream is. The only thing standing between us and our dreams is the bullshit excuses we keep giving ourselves as to why we can't achieve them. So So I said, you know, it took a tragedy for me to realize my dream. And I would hate for anyone else to wait until they go through a tragedy before they chase theirs. I said, you know, even if you're holding down two or three jobs, you can still chase your dream in the evenings or at the weekends and what have you. Right. Um, So... If you've got a dream, don't don't keep telling yourself you can't do it. You know, one of my favorite sayings was by Henry Ford. And he says, whether you think you can or think you can't, right. you're right. Right. You know, so. I think about uh, time, like actual gold in my hand. And right. when you waste it, it's like throwing out this 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 most valuable thing that we have. And so you got to mm-hmm. make the most of every minute of the day. And yeah, you're right. You got to pay your bills. Yeah. yeah you got to, yeah. yes. You got to yes. do something to pay the rent, but yeah. be diligent about it. Like yeah. go find the cheapest apartment. If your dream is to free up time so you can be an actor, yeah. you know, don't go drinking on the weekends. Don't go. Well, I mean, I've got a day job as well. Fortunately. I mean, you know, this is quite recent. Um, but before then, when see the thing about acting is, you know, even though American actors get paid probably double what Canadian actors get paid, yeah. you know, and there are different scales, you know, you've got background and then you've got actors, then you've got principal, then you've got supporting, then you've got support lead, then you've got lead kind of thing. It's, it's these different scales. Yeah. Um, but even so, um, an American actor, even with exactly the same role as a Canadian actor, will get paid more because the Screen Actors Guild contracts are so much better than the actual contracts yeah sorry about that but that's that's just a cold <laughs> fact um but um until recently because i did have a job um when i was actually on hell on wheels because i was on that show for three seasons yeah. um i did have a job that was very supportive and that i could always go back to yeah um then in sorry two- is it in carpentry Again? Well, actually, it's um, it's a crate manufacturer. Okay. So I was working there until 2014, um, and then they had a big layoff. And uh, so from 2014 onwards, I was just scratching up jobs now and then when I was able to. Now, the problem with me continuing with the acting dream is there's not a lot of employers out there will say yeah we'll give you a job oh what you want three months (laughs) off to film a movie and you still want to come back to your job yeah of course you know there's not a lot of employers out there (laughs) however um i have returned to this crate manufacturing place it's actually undergone new management so the wages have gone down substantially however um uh, a dear friend of mine who used to work there is now the manager Oh, nice. Um, so he was able to give me work, and he did say, Kevin, you can come back here anytime you like. You can still continue doing the acting, yeah. but you do need to know we've been taken over by another company and the wages have dropped substantially. Yeah. But the way I look at it is because I haven't had steady work for probably more than a couple of years, the way I look at it is any income is better than no income. Right. But also more valuable than that is the flexibility this affords me. Right. Uh, For example, today I had an audition this afternoon and I just simply said to the boss, "Um, I didn't find out until the weekend, but I've got an audition this afternoon. He said, yeah, all right, we'll see you tomorrow. Nice. You know, so, uh, and that kind of boss 
is invaluable. Yeah. You know? we, we try to do that. I, I also have a, this isn't a full-time gig for me. I wish it was. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. um, it's, it's not. Uh, so I have a full-time job as well. I manage a construction company, a spray foam insulation company. Oh, wow. And we have uh, all these young guys that have dreams and aspirations to, you know, to be more than a construction worker, which I'm not bagging on construction workers at all because I've done it for years and it's been yeah. great for me yeah. um but they want to be pilots or get their business degree or whatever it is and we're like yep yeah, whatever you need let us know and yeah. we'll fill you in when we can and bring you back when we can it's the people that actually put the effort in when they're there so yes, it of seems course. like of course yeah if somebody's coming to me and says oh you know i'm working on my degree i'm gonna need time off of course because mm-hmm. the guy with the degree is invaluable to me regardless what the degree is because yeah, yeah. it's hard work to get yeah. yeah um so if he needs time off to go do that but then you have other guys that show up you know 80% of the time and they don't give you any notice and you're like yeah when you want time off I'm probably it's, it's all say about no. communication and respect right you know what I mean so yeah and yeah. for the most part we got awesome guys they're really really good but you get the odd person that just doesn't have that same um work enthusiasm that some of the older generations did right yeah, <laughs> you yeah, just yeah. know you, you gotta yeah. work that's work ethic <laughs> work yeah. ethic that's the word yeah. I was looking for yeah it's, <laughs> it seems a little bit more difficult to find for sure well, I think attitudes are changing, yeah. you know, um, and I know, I think we all, uh, we all end up saying, oh, I sound like my parents, <laughs> you know, but I think, you know, as each generation has gone on, and I don't want to sound negative or cynical and what have you, because, you know, my mum raised me and my brother on her own. She was an amazing woman, very strong woman, very loving, very nurturing, but she would, she would discipline us whenever required kind of thing (laughs) but um you know she gave myself and my brother a really really good moral compass you know she gave us good ethics good morals and i don't want to sound like an old fart even though (laughs) even though i probably am now but um it seems that with each generation just a little bit of that ethic ethics and morals are being lost right you know um, things seem to get watered down over time right you yeah, take out yeah, what you want it seems to be what it you really love and that's what you keep to yourself and pass on but you yeah. need i don't know what the answer is to get that get it back to get that high standard there was a, a business book i'm trying i'm horrible to remember names but they talked about in the 50s and 60s the leaders of the companies in your community were the most moral people and they were the people that you know literally volunteered time had excellent families or good dads and husbands mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff and then a business book came out i think in the early 70s where like if you act like that guy you can get the same jobs and so no matter who you are as long as in the workplace you acted like that really moral upstanding guy you got ahead in the world um so it there was this big trend of that's what went on is while i'm here i act like this and then while i'm over here i can act the way i want to right and then uh so that changed business dramatically mm-hmm. um and i think we're trending towards having more moral stand-up people again i hope i hope yeah. i hope yeah yeah i think the thing is um <clears throat> excuse me it's like as i said earlier on you know a lot of it is about respect and communication you know i've always tried my best to live by the golden rule and it's the golden rule is taught in every religion. Treat others as you want to be treated. Right. Um, Einstein said that he would speak to a janitor the same way as he'd speak to a member of the royal family. Right. You know, I mean, like, and, and if everyone, 
I I actually gave a speech uh, about this, the golden rule, um, last year at at an event. And, you know, if everyone treated others as they want to be treated, then there would be no ills in the world. Right. You know, there'd be no murder, there'd be no no rape, no no abuse, no wars, you know, just... Yeah. It's like the old saying, can't we all just get along, (laughs) you know? I know. Unfortunately, I... I think we would still have that stuff. It would be a lot less if people put the effort towards it. But I worked in security in Vancouver's Chinatown. I had lots of friends that were police officers. Mm. And the one thing that I noticed down there especially, I mean, lots of mentally ill people, drug abuse, that kind of stuff. Mm. But there's people that want to be hurt. There just is. The human nature is all over the place. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, with generations of ever being good, we could probably weed out that. Mm. Um, But it's been so... I don't want to say so bad because it's really not that bad, especially in Canada and the U.S. and the, the first world countries. But uh, a lot of people um, just come from a bad background. And, mm-hmm. they, you know, uh, death by cop. The, those aren't people that are trying to hurt anybody. They just want to be relieved from whatever pain that they're in. And so yeah. they're willing to hurt somebody so that they could have uh, a police officer shoot them or beat them half to death. No, I hear what you're saying. Uh, ironically, I'm starting shooting on a short film this week, which addresses the issue of mental illness and depression. That's right. I want to talk to you about that. I saw it yeah. on Facebook. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and, um, you know, it's it's all about, you know, I said earlier, it's all about communication and respect, but it's all about understanding as well. You know, we yeah. touched on this when we were talking about my bro- and my son. Yeah. Um, people's lack of understanding or people's lack of empathy, or people's lack of patience, you know, that adds to today's problems as well, yeah. you know? But once again, it's still, it still, in my opinion, goes back to the golden rule. Treat others as you want to be treated. And what I mean by that is be understanding and empathetic. You know, if you've got to think to yourself, okay, if I suffered from depression, how would I want people to treat me? Right. You know, so you've got to try to empathize and... That is a good start to building a bridge between someone who might not suffer from depression and someone who does suffer from depression. Agree, totally. You know, when my uh, when my wife was uh, taken from us, um, I was distraught. You know, I must have cried every day for a year. Yeah. You know, uh, it was like having my leg amputated without anesthetic. You know, oh, she yeah. was her and the kids were my world. Um. But I was fortunate enough to never go into what you would class clinical depression. I was I was in deep, deep grief. I was very, very sad. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I ever went into depression, you know? I wondered about that because I've recently lost a friend. Uh, he was very young, left four kids behind. He, he died of cancer. So a young wife and, and four kids under the age of seven, I think. Uh. I'm sorry. And, uh, I'm sorry. Um, and it, he was a phenomenal guy. Mm. Um, and we see this 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 grief that's inside there. And where's the line between, you know, clinical depression? I know there's a scale one to fifty one where they rate you and stuff mm. like that. But that that sadness that someone feels at the loss, and and um, I don't know if it's lucky or not. I, I have never felt that type of loss. Like I've lost grandparents and and yeah. uh, friends, yeah. but not someone like a wife or a child or anything, anyone that close to me. I I've known, you know. Once again, this is personal as well. But my my daughter, 
as I say, she was only eight years old when her mother was killed and she witnessed it. Mm. Um, subsequently, she suffers from uh, PTSD and she has had bouts of depression. Yeah. Um, because, of course, you know, if an eight-year-old witnesses that, can, you can imagine can pretty much even. every night when you close your eyes, go to bed, that's probably what you see, you know? Yeah. Um, but... Um, I have known other people who have suffered from depression as well. And I think, you know, not being a doctor, not being a therapist, psychiatrist, whatever you, I mean, I did dabble in psychology years ago, but um, um, not being trained in it, I would say for the layman, the easiest way to differentiate between grief and depression, between sadness and depression, is your foresight that tomorrow's a new day mm -hmm. what i mean by that is you know i have spoken to people i mean one of my um i i obviously i've lost contact with him but one of my former students in england who's a wonderful wonderful man he went through depression but thank god thanks to his wife being so strong and supportive he came out the other end but he said when he was suffering the depression all he could see were his problems and no end to them wow you know uh, and I mean, it's like something that my daughter learnt, and it's very easy, very easy to remember, is suicide is a permanent solution for a temporary problem. Right. You know? Uh, one of my favorite stories is about King Solomon. Yeah. And uh, King Solomon, in biblical times, he was supposed to be the richest man on the planet, um, but he still had bad times. He still went through rough times. Right. And he actually said to... Um, um, uh, he. For, let, alone, let me start that again. He actually commissioned a jeweler to make him an ornate ring. Okay. And he said, I want you to inscribe the ring with something that will always inspire me, no matter how bad things are. That's no some pressure on a jeweler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No matter how bad things are, no matter how down I'm feeling, I can look at this ring, I can read it, and it will inspire me, it will raise my vibe, vibe it will put my feet back on the ground it will it will sort of like ground me mm -hmm. and it's a it's such a famous saying everyone's heard it virtually everyone's heard it i would imagine but the the jeweler fashioned this ornate ring he deliberated on what to actually inscribe it with and he ended up inscribing the words and this too shall pass mm. you know right and and you know most of us realize that the entire universe works in waves Right. You know, I mean, it's like um, we have the seasons, yeah. you know, uh, and grief is like waves crashing in over the beach. And this is what I found for the longest time, probably a couple of years um, when Linda passed away. You know, sometimes those waves would crash over the rocks, man. Yeah. Other times they'd be a little ripple, but the waves would subside. Yeah. You know, um, and as I say, I think the difference between grief upset and depression is depression you can't see a way out you know you can't um think clear and it's obviously unconscious but you can't think clearly enough to see a way out wow you know whereas like grief you're kind of thinking oh my god uh, I, i'm it will be um, a relief when this grief eases off. Right. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. in other words, it's almost like you are looking forward to the future. Right. Um, I can remember my daughter said to me, because 
myself and my children are very close and they mean more to me than life you know and we're very similar i mean i i'm a big old softy i know i am i'm a fourth down uh fourth down in jujitsu my fourth down in karate your characters are like these uh, hard character characters yes uh but you can't judge judge books by their covers but i'm a big softy and subsequently you know my son is very much like me he's a sensitive soul and uh erin you know she's she's um she's not overly emotional she's very very strong but she has no problem expressing her emotions and i can remember her saying to me once um daddy how long are we going to keep crying for and i said to her we're going to keep crying until we no longer need to cry and the way i likened it is if you imagine we've got a bathtub full of tears yeah and every time we cry that's lowering the level of the bath bathtub somewhat right. until at some point that bathtub will be empty. Right. Now, the truth is, um, if I focus on the memory of my wife, even 11 years later, I will still, I will still cry now. Yeah. You know, because as far as relationship is concerned, um, she is the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, she brought out the best in me. And she kind of like made me who I am to a degree, you know. Right. I mean, the two strongest women in my life were my mum and my and and Linda, my first wife. Right. Um, I heard someone describe marriage as uh, the reason that you need to do it is because that person will get you to be the better person. So on your own, that's I, what a marriage should be. Right. That's that, what a marriage should be. Unfortunately, it's not always always the case. <laughs> There's a little <coughs> bit too much selfishness out there uh, in the and world. And also, also now. Um, we're in a different generation, you know. I mean, like, I'm old school. I believe in the wedding vows, and I believe, you know, every every relationship has ups and downs. Yeah. However, my opinion is you work through the downs. Right. You know, you, you put the work in to make it succeed. Um, unfortunately, we live in a throwaway society now, and yeah. some people even throw away relationships. And nowadays don't like to sound as I'm on my soapbox here, but nowadays it is easier for people to walk out of a relationship and walk straight into another one Mm -hmm. with the honeymoon phase than it is to work on the relationship. I know guys that have been married four and five times, and that's why, because they can't get past three, four years because they get past that honeymoon stage. And like, I I don't don't have to do the work for this. Yeah, but I know why that is, though. Um, Because, you know, we need to find happiness in ourselves. Yeah. We can't put our happiness in the hands of someone else because when we do that happiness although it may feel genuine uh it will be superficial and fleeting yeah you know and um this is this is something uh i i've got knowledge about you know i know someone like this you know who literally has jumped from one relationship straight into another without taking a beat um and <clears throat> Um, and obviously uh, I'm not going to name that person, <laughs> obviously, but, uh, that is literally the case. And I think, you know, until, and I've always been very good at looking in the mirror, Yeah, you know, I'm not saying I'm handsome, but I mean, I've always been good at <laughs> reflecting Yeah, and I know I've, I've got many faults, many, 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 many faults. However, I, uh, I think we should continue working on ourselves throughout our entire lives. Yeah. But I've always been very good at looking in the mirror and reflecting and I um I respect myself and I am um 
generally a happy person. Yeah. Um, as I say, unless you can look in the mirror and find your inner joy, your inner happiness, uh, you can't rely on going through life just going through relationships until the honeymoon phase is over and then jump on the next uh, relationship, you know? Yeah, I completely but it, agree. But each to their own, each to their own, you know? I mean, yeah. it's it's like, you know, we've all got our own journey. Yeah. And we've all got a moral compass, but some people's moral compass is a different setting to other people's. Yeah. You know? I think that, um, the one, they don't want to do the work because it is work. Uh, um, it's It's never... You know, I love my wife, but there's definitely things that she needs to work on, things that I need to work on. If we're no not, one's perfect. If we're not evaluating that stuff in ourselves, it's just like business. Like, let your business just run any way it is. How does that work out for most business? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Sit down yeah. and evaluate. Did that work out good, right? Yeah. Did, yeah. Is that the way I wanted? Uh, it's probably my uh, son coming down to take pictures for us. <laughs> <laughs> Someone just ran across the top of your, st- top of oh, your landing yeah. there. Yeah, the family's running around. Um, but yeah, no one wants to evaluate and say, hey, maybe this is, especially men. I, I talked about this with um, a lady that's uh, opening up a woman's shelter. Mm-hmm. I said, not enough men evaluate themselves and judge themselves. Like if something's going wrong in my house, if everyone's bickering and fighting, the first thing I do is go, oh, what have I done to create this? Yeah, You're the leader in the house. Yep. Then, And I'm not saying I'm better than my wife or higher than my wife, but that's the role that I'm supposed to take as a leader. And if everything is going wrong under the kingdom, well, what's the king doing wrong? Yeah. Right? You got you got to start there. And sometimes it's got nothing to do with me and I can just go in and I can settle yeah. whatever's going on. But yeah. sometimes it's my bad attitude that just, you know, that vibe goes out and it just infects everybody inside the house. Yeah. And and the thing is, as I say, no relationship is is unicorns and butterflies. You know? I mean, like, you know, yeah, there, are, there are ups and downs. Once again, we're going back to the waves thing. Yeah. You know? I mean, relationships are, are the same. There were relationships are the same as the seasons you know there are ups and downs yeah you've just got to make sure that the peaks are more prominent than the troughs yeah um but once again i think something that may be um getting lost is the art of communication yeah you know 100 percent um and also, like I think all arguments are because the other person will not hear out the other person. And what I mean by that is, you know, if me and you are talking and you keep talking over the top of me, <laughs> then that, first of all, it's disrespectful because you're not listening to me. Right. Secondly, you're not really listening to what I'm saying anyway because you're already planning what you're going to say back to me. <laughs> That's right. So therefore, if you at least let me finish my sentence, then yeah. you can have a think about it. You can evaluate your response in a more intelligent way. Right. And and mature fashion. Yeah. You know? And and uh, same goes the I'm other way. I'm gonna interrupt way. you. I'm gonna interrupt you. No, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, the same thing goes the other way. If you if you're doing that, looking to just respond, yes, you're not catching the whole gist and you can't exactly and you maybe go, Oh, well that's not what she's mad about at all. Exactly. <laughs> if exactly. I had just listened for five more minutes and realized she's mad about something someone said to her at work, not what I did. Yeah, I'm exactly. not even the one on the hook for this. Yeah, yeah. Look, there's someone coming down the stairs. There we go. I'm going to put the camera over. He's uh, our photographer for the podcast. So. <laughs> How are you doing? Good. Good. I, uh, I'm trying to talk him into being my full-time producer, and when we start getting paid, he can get paid, but I haven't quite convinced him to listen to two old guys talk for uh, two hours. What do you mean, old guys? Well, speak for yourself. I'm, I'm an old guy for him, for I, sure. I've, what's, what's his name? What's your name? This is Eric. Eric. I've got a question for you, Eric. 
How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Yes, but it's very expensive and the light bulb has got to want to change. We've got to get him on camera one that's, day, that's, too. That's the cleanest joke I know. <laughs> he uh, He's the one that gets us uh, uh, fully set up on here. He knows the... Uh, the, the software, the yeah. everything way better than I do. I'm just a if I if I want to know how to use a computer, I'll ask a child. That's it. You know? We had one uh, bail on us a while ago, and so I was looking for a new one. And I ask Eric, and he tells me he's 12. Yeah. And then uh, so I go down to the store, and I'm like, "Listen, this is what we got going. This one need." The tech said exactly what Eric said. I'm like, "All yeah. right." So I'll just <laughs> listen to Eric from now on. <laughs> He'll be our technical support and get everything. Figured so as well out. as your producer, he should be your manager. Then really, Probably, it? yeah. <laughs> I think uh, when he gets a little older, a little hunger for money, then he'll take the job on. We just need to get a few more sponsors, then he'll be on board. You can't get hungrier for money? Okay. <laughs> you just need to see the money start flowing in. Yeah. 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 We did, uh, I don't know, you know if you know what an Amazon affiliate is. Um, I, I've heard of Amazon. I don't know it, what an affiliate to Amazon would It's be. an app. and you. Uh, so what you do is you take links off of Amazon and you put it on your YouTube page. Yep. And then if someone buys through that link, then you get paid oh, for it. Oh, you're monetizing your YouTube. Basically, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. So uh, he tells me about this. And I'm like, all right, well, we don't even have that many listeners yet. So let's see what we can do. Well, we made 12 bucks. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, like that's out of, good. That's out of good. the blue. He's like, he texts me. He's like, look at this. We <laughs> so he's all excited that we're making money off Amazon already. That's awesome. So he's like, do we take this out or do we? I'm like, I think we can let it sit in there a little while. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Let it build interest. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, yeah. The, uh, the youth, if we uh, can get them working early and get that in them, that's what I'm all about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I definitely. would love him to be my uh, full time manager and, yeah. uh, and tech guy, producer. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, where were we? We were talking about uh, relationships. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, trying to uh, trying to um, trying to make sense of it all. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I didn't even meet my wife until I was thirty. So I dated right. for a long time, and I think that was a big benefit for us. Was not, and she was thirty as well. Yeah. Um, to to just figure out who we were and yeah. get happy. I actually remember sitting down. I had broken up with this girl, or she'd broken up with me. I don't even remember which way it went, and I just went. You know what? I'm good with this. Just whatever happens next, I'm just going to choose to be happy and uh, be in a good mood about it. And then right after that, I met my wife. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, um, it was different for me and Linda because we literally grew up together. Okay. Uh, I don't mean from small children, but I mean, you know, we were both teens when we met. Yeah. So we grew as a couple, you know. And and, uh, the thing about that is, you know, our love just grew deeper every day. Yeah. You know, Um, how old but, were you when you guys met? Um, she was seventeen. I was I had I was just coming up twenty. I think. Okay. It was like three years difference between us. And uh, as I say, we were together before she passed away. We were together for over a quarter of a century. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, twenty one years married, twenty six years together. Um, but I mean, like, once again, you know, I always try to find a positive. Yeah. You know. Um, and I believe no matter what the situation, if you look long enough, hard enough and deep enough, you can find a positive. Um, and the positive is that I was blessed by the universe, the divine God, whatever, that she was even in my life at all. 
Right. You know? Um, gave you two beautiful children. Gave me two amazing children, and, and, and they were blessed as well to have such an awesome mother. You know, um, Joshua had her for 15 years. Erin had her for eight years. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, they were blessed. to. It's better to have had her for a short time than not to have had her at all. Yeah. You know, so as I say, I always try to see the positive. And of course, we all know um, whether you believe in the law of vibration, the law of attraction or whatever, we all know that what you focus on expands. Exactly. You know, and you can focus on the negative and the negative will fill this house so fast or you can focus on the positive and it may take a little longer because negative seems to be stronger than positive sometimes <laughs> but you know if you focus on the positive then then that'll make i mean like you know it, it's like I've said to people in the past, you know, do you prefer being happy or do you prefer being unhappy? Do you prefer pe- <laughs> That's a good way to look at looking it. on the bright side or do you prefer looking on the on the dark side? Right. You know? Yeah. You know, so And then you know what? I, I've I've met people that prefer the dark side. I know. They just haven't felt the good side long enough, I think. Because it is better. It, you know, I've <sighs> I've been on both sides. I've been that miserable, angry young guy that was mad at everything. Every Everything that happened to me was someone else's fault. Mm. And it was just, it was a miserable way to Back to looking in the mirror. That's it. And then when I started going, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe this is my fault that I did this. Uh, I have Mm. a buddy that said, said to me at one time, um, when you look in the mirror, it's the sum of all the decisions you made in your life. So if you don't like what you see, if you're angry, if you're upset, if you're depressed, Mm. that's all based on your decisions and everything you do. When you make good decisions, good things happen to you. You make bad decisions, bad things happen to you, right? Absolutely. And uh, as much as some of those bad decisions are really fun, (laughs) they're they're still bad decisions, right? They will bite you in the butt eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Ben Shapiro, um, you know who he is? I've heard the name. Yeah, he's like a internet star guy, super, super smart, great at debates. Uh, I can't remember what his actual, maybe he's a lawyer by trade, but right. um, uh, amazing guy to listen to. But he talks about that at all times, that he looks at statistics, and if you choose not to have sex before marriage, and you choose when to have a baby, and you choose to get married, those people that make just those three choices are like 90% less likely to be in poverty at any mm. time in their life, or suffer from depression, or... I can't remember all the stats exactly, but it was just like three basic decisions will make your life better for a majority of your life. Crazy. Yeah. Just, it blows my mind when it's as simple as that and nobody, no one's teaching that. No one's telling the, you know, we tell the kids, you know, don't have sex before marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty tough to fight against the the natural way of life. Or it's the, na- the natural urges, the peer pressure, you know, it, the excitement, the taboo, you know, everything, you know. Um you know, we were talking about sort of like negatives and positives. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to make a point and it's gone out of my head. <laughs> that isn't, that, isn't that ironic? Yeah. Uh, no, I'll tell you what it was. It's come back. There you go. There it is. There it is. <laughs> um, you know, the thing is, it's like I've said to people before, you know, we're all entitled to have a bad day now and then. Yeah. We're all entitled to get on the pity pot now and then. Yeah. But the secret is not to remain there. Right. You know, um, it's like uh, an example would be 
if you speak to a friend and every time, every single time you say, how are you doing, buddy? And they'll say, oh, crikey, it's terrible. All the, you know, I mean, cats and dogs living together and fire and brimstone and the world's coming to hell, oh my God, uh, you know. So if that is his response, every time you say, how are you doing, buddy? Yeah. Then there's going to come a point where you think, oh, I'm no, not, not again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I think, I think the thing is, you know, we should all make an effort. I'll, I'll give you an example, another example. You know Jack Canfield? Jack Canfield. Jack Canfield was one of the teachers on The Secret. Okay. And also he is the co-author of The Chicken Soup for the Soul books. Okay, yeah. And um, he said he worked for, uh, I think his name was William Wattles, I think. Um, And he was like a very, very successful, wealthy man. But he had done it in nothing but positive ways. Okay. And uh, he said the first thing he did when he went to intern for him or when he went to work for him and what have you, he said, right, I want you to write down a list of everyone you know, everyone who you interact with. So he had this big page, this list of sort of like all his all his acquaintances that he saw down the bar or whatever or, or, you know, and his family and his friends and, you know, people who he interacted with. And he went to him and he said, right, I've written the list. He said, right, now I want you to scrub out the list of any of those names who bring negativity into your life. Wow. And I want you to disassociate yourself with them. And Jack Canfield said, I I can't do that. One of them is my mother, you know, I mean, (laughs) and he was serious because, you know, his father was an alcoholic, his mother uh, abused him, you know, I don't know, I don't know in what way, but she abused him, what have you. And um, it's like, I guess it was like, you know, it was his mum, so he loved her, but he just didn't like her, Yeah, you know, (laughs) and she was very, very negative. Uh, as was his dad. Um, I don't know if by that time his dad had passed and what have you. So he said, I, I, I can't get rid of uh, everyone on this list because one of them is my mother. So he said, okay. He said, I'll give you Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter with your mum. The rest of the time, Ooh. cut her out your life. Yeah. You know? Um, so that's an extreme. That yeah. is an extreme. But if we can all make an effort to cut negativity out of our life then invariably it will make us happier yeah and that's essentially what we all want yeah you know whether it is um through good health or through a good job or or whatever but we want to be happy have you had to do that in your life take negative my my wife is very good at this i'll i'll I, I'm all the emotionally purge. You know, <laughs> I, I'm the. I always believe people have something better in them, and I think that I can, I can dig that out of them. And so I'll probably stay friends with someone too long. Most of the time, they get tired me of me pushing them too hard. Like, oh, stop that! Stop being negative. Yeah. And then they'll eventually just go away because they don't want to hear what I have to say anymore. <laughs> but I'm always, and she's like, no, that person is like. She even did it with her dad. She's like, nah, I can only see him like a couple times a year. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And I used to think that was a horrible way to treat somebody, especially a parent. And then the older I got, the more I realized, like, oh, she was really protecting herself. And she was protecting me and our kids. And, and like, that just wasn't worthwhile being around a person like that. No, I mean, like, there are people... You know, blood binds us to certain people, but I mean, you know, you've, you've heard as well as I do, sometimes, you know, some parents aren't fit to be parents. They really aren't, you know? And should the child, um, stay, 
tied to that parent, even though that parent sexually abuses them or physically abuses right. them or, you know, beats them, um, is an alcoholic, is a drug addict, what have you. Well, it's my mum or, oh, it's my dad, so I've got to be there for them. No. You know, once you get to a certain age, you can make your own journey. Right. You know? I mean, I always say friends are the family you choose. Yeah. Whereas blood is the family you're kind of stuck with. Yeah. Now, I'm very fortunate. Well, I've only got one living blood relative, and that is my brother. He lives in England. Um, so you don't have to talk to him very often. I don't have to talk to him very often. I mean, you know, I do love him. Yeah. I mean, you know, but even now we we get into blazing arguments, <laughs> but I do love him. Um, but uh, as I say, you know, friends are the family you choose. Now, the thing is, as I say, we all want to be happy. Yeah. Now, if there is someone in our lives who brings nothing but negativity, why would we allow that to continue? Yeah. You know, or why should we have to allow that to continue? I see that everyone's life, like, you know, the way they eat, the way they exercise, they never evaluate where they're at. Like, you know, the, uh, not the fat shame, but there's people that do the opposite of fat shaming where they're like, oh, it's okay to be this. I'm like, that's unhealthy. Like, mm. try not to be, you know, because you know that it's wrong and they pump it up in their own head going, no, no, it's okay because I'm my own person. I'm an individual. I'm whatever it is. And not really evaluating how bad that is. And they do it mm. with people. They do it with exercise. With And if yeah. you would, like you said earlier, just take, even if it's one negative person out of your life and add a positive one. Or go do one sit-up today mm. yeah. and then take away one cookie. <laughs> you reminded me of a great, great... Uh, you know Ricky Gervais? Yes. Okay. Oh, so I just... His new series, or maybe it's an old series on Netflix, Life After. Have yeah. you seen that? I haven't seen it. I've heard about oh, it, but dude, I haven't seen see it. it. Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off, but it no, was no, that's so fine. funny. He was uh, he was on stage once, and he was talking about this. I think he was talking about a Jerry Springer episode that yeah. he's that he'd seen, and this this woman was immensely obese, yeah. immensely obese. <laughs> And she, her diet was she would eat 18 Big Macs every day. Oh, my. How do you even pay for that? 18 Big Macs every day. And she said she's sort of like laying on this bed because she, you know, her, she is so obese that her bones cannot take her own weight. So she's just permanently laying on the bed, oh. you know, and she gets sponge baths and all that right kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, she said... I don't, I don't want to die, Jerry, but I don't know what to do. And Ricky Gervais said, well, maybe 17 Big Macs would be a start. Right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I, I don't understand how people can keep feeling crappy and living their life crappy and yeah. expecting a magic pill to turn around. That's I it. You know, don't, if, if, I don't get it. That's it. I mean, you know, happiness is our ultimate goal. Yeah. It's our ultimate goal. And uh, as I say, you know, if you can release any negativity, whether that be a person or whether that be a thought, and it's really tough to do sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I'm the same as you. You know, I have often given people the benefit of the doubt too much. Yeah. I have often been too giving, either emotionally or financially, towards people who haven't really justified it. Yeah. Um, my brother himself has said, you know what, Kevin, you're too soft. Yeah. You know, you want to get a bit tougher kind of thing. He said, you're a tough mother, <laughs> you know, physically. So you want to become tougher emotionally because you are too giving, you yeah. know? And I know from experience that that has been the case several times in my life. That's a hard fence to balance on though, right? Is that, you Yeah, know, because you don't want to... 
you know, you, you, you like, I like being a nice guy. Yeah. I do not like being taken advantage of. I do not like feeling like a convenience. I do not like being disrespected. Yeah. However, if I have feelings for that person, you know, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a, a relationship, or whether it's just a, a, um, an acquaintance who I've got a soft spot for, you know, um, yeah, I I think, but but I I like being who I am. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I like being who I am, and I think that it's better to lean more towards being giving. And yeah. being okay with it, even if you do get taken advantage of, even yes. if it doesn't end up the way, yes. then being mean to somebody and having yes. to live with, yes, yes, oh, yes. was I a jerk to that person yeah. unjustly, or you know that yeah. that's a harder one to swallow too. That's like it's like when you get to the top of the cliff and you reach down and you offer your hand to the guy behind you, yeah, to help pull him up, rather than climb over the guy in front of you to get to the top of the cliff. Exactly, you know, so. yeah. I uh, I wanted to get into your acting a little bit more because three years on set for Hell on Wheels, yes, um, that you got deep into what was in the industry there. Yeah, um, and when I was younger, I wanted to be an actor. I did three years or four years of drama in high school, and I yeah. uh, came out and girls were more important than anything. <laughs> so I got uh, severely distracted from yeah. what my goals were, and then I made good money doing drywall. Blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to know what it was like being behind the scenes and and uh, being well, on set. Well, my first okay is the story. Uh, my first acting gig was in a low budget independent zombie film that no one ever saw. <laughs> okay, you know, uh, and they were doing it on a shoestring. It was a great experience. It was great fun. Met some wonderful people, some of which I'm still friends with today. Yeah. Um, and uh, because it was on a shoestring, I also doubled up as the stunt coordinator as well. So I was one of the main characters, and I was the stunt coordinator. Um, and then. And as I say, that was low budget. It was independent. Yeah. No one ever saw it. Um, and then I had an audition for Hell on Wheels. Yeah. And uh, it was for the role of Paddy Quinn, the walking boss of the Irishman. And uh, on the breakdown, it said a hulking Irishman with three fingers missing of one hand. And of course, yeah. they use prosthetics you got all your and fingers. what have you. <laughs> they use all their prosthetics and what have you. But um, And this was supposed to be for one scene. Okay. So anyway, I went for the audition. I just did what I did. I walked out and I thought, okay, you know, it's, it's in the hands of God or universe or whatever. And then um, four days later, I got a callback audition. Now, bearing in mind, you know, this was for a hulking Irishman. <laughs> now, I'm six foot. I usually float between 175 and 180. I'm hardly hulking. You yeah. know, I'm in good shape, but I'm not what you'd say a big guy, you know. Yeah. And when I went back for my callback audition, there were probably ten other guys there, um, and I assumed they were all they were they had all been called back for the role of Paddy Quinn, and they were all bigger than me. Yeah. They were all—I mean, there were some real big guys there. <laughs> and I thought, all it's going to take is for one of these guys to have a really good Irish accent, and he's going to get the gig. Yeah. But I thought, oh well, whatever. I'm here. I'll do my best. Right. So I went in there for the callback audition. The the director of that particular episode was there because there was like rotating directors on the on the show. You know, there was about five directors who would you know it's, this episode you're going to direct, next episode I direct. And, Is that just and a timing thing? There's just too much to do all of them at once. I don't know. I think uh, I think the producers invited certain directors to 
do an episode and they liked it so they would ask oh let me know when you want another episode done kind of thing okay. i think it was like that but anyway the director uh, the director was sat in the um in the callback audition a guy called neil lebute who is a very well-known playwright he's he's won many awards he's a new yorker uh but he was sat down uh watching the and i didn't know who he was yeah and so i did my callback audition now the thing is in auditions you don't shake hands, okay? You know, and the reason being because, like, you know, they could be seeing three hundred people in a day, and you don't know if that person's got a cold or is going down with something. So you don't really want to shake hands, and if you do, then you you you've got your hand sanitizer there, kind of thing, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I did my audition, and the casting director said, "Okay, thanks, Kevin. We'll let you know." And as I went to leave, this guy who I didn't know at the time who turned out to be Neil Lebute, an awesome guy, fantastic director, fantastic writer. He actually stood up and he said, thanks very much. And he held his hand out and I thought, oh, he's actually wanting to shake my hand. So yeah, I'll, I'll shake his hand. I, I shook his hand. I said, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah. And I left. Um, four days after that, actually, I don't know if the callback audition was four days later or whatever. But anyway, four days after my callback audition, now remember, originally, Paddy Quinn was supposed to be in one scene. Yeah, He was a throwaway character. He was in one scene and then he was gone. You'd never see him again. Yeah. Four days after my callback audition, I got, um, got a phone call from my um, agent and she said, what did you do during your callback audition? I said, what did I mess up? Did I offend yeah. someone? And she said, no, they've written you in as a recurring character. Nice. So my That has to be some kind of exciting. Oh, it was so exciting. It was so exciting. And um, so my one scene actually turned into three seasons and I outlived the show. You know, I was yeah. even on the very, 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 very last episode ever yeah. in this big barroom brawl, you know? Nice. I mean, you know, Paddy was not... See, this is this is the thing. Paddy was not a huge role, but it's amazing how many people noticed Paddy. Yeah. You know? Uh, I mean, you know, you get some diehard uh, Hell on Wheels fans, and I can remember... <laughs> this is so funny. Um, I can remember I was out with my buddy, and um, this... I can't even remember if it, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a young lady came up to me or not really that young. Uh, and she said, do you know what? You look just like that guy off hell on wheels, but he's Irish. <laughs> and I said, and I said, yeah, I get that a lot. I just let it go. <laughs> it's quite funny. Quite funny. Yeah. But I mean, like there's a lot of people who were fans of the show who did know who Paddy was because he was a recurring character. Yeah. Um, and they would see me, and they would think they would kind of put two and two together and come up with five because they think you look familiar to me, but I can't think who you are. Yeah. Um, my buddy's ex-girlfriend, um, he said, oh, yeah, Kevin's on Hell on Wheels. This is when it, we were still shooting it. And she said, I know every character on Hell on Wheels. He's not on Hell on Wheels. He said, yeah, he's Paddy Quinn. He's the walking boss of the Irish. She said, I, she said, I know who Paddy Quinn is. <laughs> So I did one of my lines in an Irish accent, and when I did that, she said, "Oh, you are," <laughs> you know. So they didn't put two and two together and come up with four until I did the accent as well, yeah, which is kind of strange. Well, and and being in character and the the costume and and the scenes, exactly, it's not the 
same when you step out exactly. of it, right? Exactly. I, I know I've seen actors and actresses, and I'm like, man, where do I know that person yeah. from? And when I first saw, um, so we originally started talking years ago when I was teaching self defense, and and you were looking to come and teach, and so I looked to oh, you right, 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 online, yeah. and then I yeah. was like, oh, that's the guy from Rambo Four. <laughs> and so I'm searching through there, and I go to uh, IMBD or whatever the yeah. the app is there, and search yeah. it up. I'm like, no, that's not him. And then I searched up your name, and I actually saw, oh, Hell on Wheels, and yeah. it was amazing how much you guys look alike. Yeah, um, but. Yeah, that's who I thought you were for, I don't know, for six, seven months until right, I actually right, right. dug in to, to see it. Yeah, I think that guy earns a bit more acting than I do. Yeah, I can't think <laughs> of anything else he's been in other than... I think um, if it's the actor I'm talking about, now are you talking, okay, so the latest Rambo. Yeah, where he's like, and what he's, are you he's at, an Engl- He's one of the English sort of like uh, gorillas. You know, he's, Correct. Yeah. yeah, and he's the one that gets his leg mangled up and someone sticks his... Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, ironically, me and my buddy watched uh, Aquaman the other day yeah. and he plays, and he's only, he's only got a small part in it, but he plays King... Uh, King Atlan or whatever, okay. you know, the King of Atlantis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've seen him in a few other things. <laughs> I've seen him a few. Other. Cool, cool. But anyway, um, I, I've totally digressed because you were uh, you were asking what it was like on set. Yeah. Um, you know, when I used to compete in martial arts, as I say, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be three times British Karate Champion. Yeah. Um, and uh, every time I fought in competition, I would. I would turn into a magician and I would be able to poop through the eye of a needle. It was amazing, you know? <laughs> uh, but what amazing. I'm saying is I would always get nervous before a fight. Didn't matter how much experience I had, didn't matter what number fight it was, I would always get nervous before a fight. Right. But when you're on the mats and they say, Ajime, or they say fight, your nerves disappear. Right. Uh, and I liken that to my first day on set because I had quite a big scene um, for my first day uh, in, the, in the saloon. You know, you've got Anson Mount who plays Cullen Bohan in the main character. He stood in the middle. You've got the freedmen, the black, the black guys on one side. You've got the Irishman on the other. And I step forward and I'm arguing with Anson Mount. I'm arguing with Cullen Bohannon. And I was thinking, you know, leading up to it, I was thinking, oh, I hope I don't mess this up. I hope I don't mess this up. I hope I don't forget my lines. I hope I, I hope I look intense enough and blah, 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 blah. As soon as they said action, yeah, it was exactly the same as when I was on the mats in competition. Yeah. You know, all the nerves disappeared. I do. did what I did. Yeah. You know? Um, funny story. Sorry. Yeah, hey, I want to ask you a question about that because I'm the same way with the podcast. Like my yeah. heart is pounding out of my chest before it starts, and then as soon as I hit record yeah. and the stuff starts recording, I look. I'm like, oh, this is good. I can yeah, have yeah, a conversation. Yeah. Um, and I and when I fought, it, it was the same thing. I yeah. would I would literally be vomiting off the yeah, sides yeah, of the mat. Yeah. But I think that is the thing that keeps you good. Feel the fear and do it anyway. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, how yeah. you get past that or not even past because I like the nervousness still. Like when I feel it, I'm like, okay, this is, yeah, this but, is important. Because you've learned, uh, I mean, especially as a martial artist, you learn to control it. You know, you learn to turn those nerves into excitement. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, I can remember when I was part of the Great Britain squad, there was a guy there who was the reigning heavyweight world wacko, wacko world champion and his name was Alvin Mighty. What a great name, eh? No Alvin kidding. Mighty. And I said to him, Alvin, do you still get nervous when you fight? He said, I never fight without him. (laughs) You know? So even, you know, a world champion uh, in the wacko world, which is like the biggest amateur 
kickboxing organization in the world, yeah. uh, widespread throughout the world. And yeah, there's this really, really experienced guy who I was looking up to, and he was saying, yeah, man, I still get nervous. I still... Tyson said it in an interview. Yeah. He said he was scared out of his mind. He would just like have to stare him down and yeah. bring out all the angry kid that was in him. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. But he was nervous. He was scared before yeah. he got in every ring. And I think there's some motivation in that. Yeah. I mean, that's how we survived bears and cougars and saber-tooths and Fight all that. Fight or flight, yeah. <laughs> yeah Fight exactly. or flight. Yeah. 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 So the uh, that was obviously a really positive experience for you on the Absolutely. The on but, the, the, but the thing is, I mean, like, it reminds me of uh, another funny story if we've got time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, time. the thing is, like, you know, when I when they say action, I'm that character. When they say cut, I'm not that character. Yeah. You know, and I know that you get method actors. You know, I mean, like Heath Ledger, unfortunately, went the wrong way. Uh, but you've got Daniel Day Lewis. Uh, you've got uh, Dustin Hoffman. I you know, John you, Wayne was that kind of guy too. Really? Yeah, that he just he would stay in stay in character. And, yeah. yeah. Well, I can remember. Can you remember? I mean, you know, you're younger than me. I don't know if you will remember it. There was a film with Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier called Marathon Man. Mm, don't remember. Fantastic it. film. Even today, it would stand up as a really good thriller. Cool. So anyway, Laurence Olivier, of course, he was he was a very, 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 and it was Sir Laurence Olivier before he died. Um, he was a very famous thespian, uh, Shakespearean actor, and he went into movies. Yeah, and um, he was the the baddie of this movie, and and um, Dustin Hoffman was the reluctant hero yeah. of of the movie. And uh, they turned up on set on a Monday morning, and Dustin Hoffman looked like shit. <laughs> And Laurence Olivier said, what on earth is the matter? And Dustin Hoffman said, well, my character hasn't slept for two days, so I haven't slept for two days. Uh, my, my character hasn't eaten for two days or showered for two days, so I haven't eaten or showered for two wow. days. And Laurence Olivier said, my dear boy, you should try acting. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You know? And, and that's what but, I believe in, you know? I mean, like, and that's part of the actor's job. You know, you're becoming that, person in a believable yeah. fashion but it doesn't mean you have to remain that person once they say cut yeah you know i mean like i've always believed no matter what line of work you're in you should be able to leave work at work right you know what i mean yeah i mean it's like when um when daniel day lewis did um uh, lincoln he adopted that character 24-7 from the first day of shooting to the last day of shooting. Yeah. You know, so he would go home and his wife would essentially have to put up with Abraham Lincoln for five months. <laughs> yeah. Leave work at work. <laughs> I, I tell that to my sales staff. Like, it's when uh, when you're doing sales, you have to be a specific person, right? And you kind of judge, especially when you're doing cold calls or warm calls, mm. you're going in, you don't know that person that well. Mm. And so you're sort of trying to figure them out in the first couple seconds in there and how to communicate communicate with them but you're acting when you're there because I don't talk to my friends like I talk to a customer yeah, of right? course of course and then you you have a big battle with your wife or with your boss or with an employee yeah. and then you still got to go do a sales job yeah, so you yeah. have to shut that off yes. turn salesmen on and go and do your sales job then you can come out and be mad again if you need to but yeah. you have to go in there in a good mood and happy and excited for their project and and all that kind of stuff and so I attribute it to being like a good actor is just to really dig deep and be the person they need you to be for that little absolutely. bit of time absolutely um so yeah it's it's cool i like i think the stories of those method actors are are, are cool stories to hear that, yeah you know john wayne played the 
the cowboy at home and yeah. you know it sure is difficult on families and stuff but the true actors i think are the people that can turn it on and turn it off yeah i mean like uh, okay so daniel day lewis is is a highly acclaimed and highly successful and highly respected actor yeah however <laughs> you know i mean like if he's that good, he should be able to turn it on and off when he's so. when it's needed. Yeah, you know, maybe it's a value thing. Like if I need to be someone specific and it's valuable to me or my family, then I'll be that person. And mm. maybe they just like it's easier just to stay in character, just to be that to grow. I don't know, be, man. I don't know. I'm I mean, making stuff up. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you know, uh, one acting coach that I worked with, he said, and I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like, you know, actors. Um, uh, have got to be believable in a fantasy world. Yes. You know? Yeah. Now, when you leave the set, you're back in the real world, you know? So just go back to being yourself. You know, that's my opinion. Yeah. I mean, um, I would, I would love being as successful as Daniel Day-Lewis, but, (laughs) you know, I, I, uh, yeah, but I don't, I wouldn't want to, um, make that choice of staying in character. Yeah. You know? Imagine doing a sitcom. You have to be in that character for yeah. three years. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why he only does movies. Yeah. <laughs> so have you, uh, what else, you said you did some acting classes. What else did you do to prepare for, for acting? I didn't, I, 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 did, I hadn't done any acting classes at all before I won the role of Paddy Quinn. Oh, okay. It was only after I got on that show that I thought, well, maybe I should start doing a few courses here and there yeah. to uh, broaden my acting muscle or to be, to get tips on different um, outlooks, different approaches and blah, blah, blah. So was it specific to that character, or was it a general? No, acting no, no. Character? It was just general acting. You know, like I, I, I'd been to several audition classes. You know, the best way to win an audition and the etiquette okay. of when you walk in the room and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, uh, as I say, a few years ago, I went down to LA and I worked with several people. It was like a week long camp. Yeah. You know, and I worked with several acting coaches down there who brought something different to the table and what have you, you know. Uh, but as I say, when I actually started acting, I hadn't had any acting experience at all. I just kind of like was the right person for Flying the role. by the seat of your pants. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Essentially. Uh, but I mean, that's the thing. I mean, like, you know, you, you get these stories about these newcomers who've never acted a day in their life. They, they've been spotted by a talent agent or something and they've been given... Um, I mean, it's like, uh, what was this um, recent Matthew McConaughey film? White Boy Rick. Okay. And the guy, the main character is, is his son, uh, this guy Rick. Yeah. And... I think I heard somewhere that it was his first ever acting gig. Wow. Now, when you watch that film, if you are critical, you would probably say, yeah, he's not the best actor in the world. He can act, yeah. you know, uh, but he's not really the best actor in the world. However, that sometimes happens that, you know, someone literally is plucked out of obscurity and given the lead and his co-star is Matthew McConaughey. That's crazy. <laughs> Do you eh? know what I mean? How, those great stories for you hear them all the time with actors, yeah. right? Like I don't know how I'm waiting. I'm waiting to be discovered myself, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like you know, I know in the amount of time I've been doing it. I mean, I know that there are many actors out there who have been acting a lot longer than me, and they haven't been as fortunate as I've been. I'm not saying I'm famous. I'm not saying I'm all that in a bag of potato chips. What I'm saying is that I have. I have won more roles than people who've been acting a lot longer than me. Yeah. You know? Um, uh, 
I can remember I was uh, the 2014 Rosie Awards, which is the Alberta Film and TV Industry uh, Awards. Okay. And they're called the Rosies. Yeah. And 2014, I was nominated for Best Actor, Best Albertan Actor, Best Role by an Albertan Actor for my role of Paddy Quinn. Yeah. And I didn't win it, but it was still an honor to be nominated. That's fantastic, you know. Um, And this guy who did win it, came up to me afterwards oh, we we're in the we we're in the foyer area or what have you um and he uh, he sort of like walked past me as he walked past me i said oh congratulations shook his hand he said yeah man he said to be honest you're where i want to be <laughs> so i said what do you mean by that he said well i've never had i've never had a role in a major especially in a major american tv show yeah you know he said you're where i want to be i might have won this but you're where i want to be and i thought Wow, that's that's an honor to hear that. Yeah. But having said that, acting, there is always that element of luck. I mean, you know, you could be the best actor in the world, but if you don't have the look the yeah. director's looking for, then you're not even going to get an audition. The problem is, if you do have the look the director's looking for, you might be up against 100 other people with the same look. Right. <laughs> you know, so there is an element of luck. The, uh, I have a friend that's a, an actress, and she was uh, she had went to some course, and they they kind of boiled down the type of roles that she should go after. So you're never going to be a leading lady because you're too tall, or you're too you know you're too heavy, or you're too whatever. And yeah, I just yeah, yeah. I, I was I was, and I get the industry and what they're kind of looking for. But I was really upset when I heard she said this. I'm like, don't believe that. Just just don't don't buy into because she's this phenomenal actress. Yeah. And I think about. Um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Throw Mama from the Train and the uh, um, what? The old woman from Throw Mama from the Train, right. the like Goonies. She, yeah, she's got yeah. a face like a burnt rubber boot. Yeah. Like, there's not, but she's a phenomenal actress. Had lots yeah. of great roles, even a lot of lead roles. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, you can't buy into. So, have you ever done anything like that? Like, had someone say, "Oh, this is the role you should be playing," or "These are the um, things you should be going." Well, after. well, one of, one of the uh, courses I went on, you know, they said you've got to know who you are, and I don't mean who you are emotionally but who you are when you look in the mirror yeah i mean it's like for example it, let's say for argument's sake let's say that uh leonardo dicaprio is the most handsome man in the world yeah. let's just say that for argument's sake whether we, whether we agree or not you know <laughs> let's just say for this for this conversation leonardo dicaprio is is the most handsome man in the world yeah if they are after a drug addicted pedophile Leo, doesn't matter how good an actor he is, he's not going to win that role because his look doesn't suit that role. Now, I look in the mirror and it doesn't matter how big a softy I am. It doesn't matter how sensitive or how emotional I can be. I look in the mirror, I see the shaved head, I see the broken nose, I see the tattoos, (laughs) I see the wrinkles, and I know that I am more than likely going to be going for roles of the the Russian or the... A secret mob. secret serviceman, or the soldier, or the cop, or yeah. the baddie, you know, or the MMA guy, or whatever. Yeah. And I'm perfectly fine with being typecast in those roles because, yeah. let's face it, Jason Statham, who is not the best actor in the world, has made millions <laughs> out of those type of roles, you know. Yeah. 
So, what would the ultimate end be for you in the the uh, the the acting realm? Would you like to do another series? Would you like the to ultimate do, end? Or the the next the next project? <laughs> like, where, what would be the the largest goal? For the you? next project is um, the next payday. <laughs> you know, I mean, like the thing is, as I say. Uh, the thing about Alberta, you know, I don't want to move away from Alberta because my kids are here and, yeah. you know, I don't want to be too far from them. Uh, so I am one of those, I am one of that 95% who are having to hold down a day job while still continuing to chase the acting dream. Yeah. Um, a buddy of mine who's a very good actor, uh, he lives here as well, Um he said the most we can hope for in southern Alberta is getting a recurring principal role. Yeah. That's his belief. Um, and a recurring principal role would be very nice. However, I want to I want to be a successful actor. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is not just getting the odd role here and there, not just getting the scraps that weren't offered to other stars first. You know, I mean, I would love, I would love to be the lead in a major big budget motion picture Mm -hmm. or or and i should say i would love to be the lead in a big budget major tv show yeah and and you know i believe if we do not quit we cannot fail because either we're going to succeed or we're going to die trying but you will not have quit right you know yeah um, is this a matter of like changing the industry to like what what has to happen for this to be a better place for actors and actresses? Well, I think Actra uh, Actra Alberta could take a tip from the I, I can't remember what it's called is it UBCB or something like that the the BC Union yeah you know I mean it's all Actra Actra is Canada wide but Actra Alberta could take a tip from the BC uh, um, uh, union, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean, that's that, that's where all the work is, you know? Or yeah. a majority of the work. Uh, however, I do believe I can still become a successful actor, even living in, in southern Alberta, given the opportunity, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? I mean, like, uh, there was a great show on uh, English TV called um, uh, Only Fools and Horses. Okay. It's a great comedy show. And there was uh, Uncle Albert. Uncle Albert didn't start acting until he was 85. <laughs> I love those stories. And, and like, you know, he became, like, virtually an overnight success because it was such a successful TV show. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he became a success at the age of 85. Yeah. You know, so I think, you know, and that's, uh, you know, we were talking about relationships earlier on. You know, if you don't quit... You will succeed. Yeah, I agree, hundred you know? percent. The uh, and and defining success too, right? The I would consider it successful what you're doing now. And my other friends that are acting in Alberta, you're getting roles. You're doing the stuff they absolutely love to do. Mm. If you could do it full time, that's just the next level of success. Yeah, absolutely, and, and that's can, what I want. That's yeah. what I want. Yeah, that is my idea of success. Is okay. I, I actually wrote it down somewhere. You know, my idea of being a successful actor is being on set at least 104 days a year. Oh, nice. And the reason I say that is because that would average out two days a week. Okay. And that might mean you are on set for three or four months straight, and then you're not working for the next eight months. But a three or four four-month straight gig 
is going to pay you enough to sustain you over the year. Yeah. You know, even in Southern Alberta on actual wages as opposed to Screen Actors Guild wages. Yeah. So, you know, I've always, my dream is to win. And once again, there's always an element of luck. And, you know, I, I for the amount of time I've been in it, I know I have done uh, quite well, even though it doesn't feel like it, because uh, I'll give you an example. I did Hell on Wheels yeah. for three years. And then the following year, I did. I had small roles in two movies. The year after that, I had nothing yeah. at all. And then last year, I did three episodes of Winona, um, and I was I did a little bit of background on a Kevin Sorbo movie. Um, but He's still acting, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Um, I uh, he actually. Uh, uh, either produced or directed this movie. It was called East Texas Oil. Okay. And the reason I, I just did background on that is because all the roles had already been cast. Yeah. And my agent just said, if you want to go out, get on set and earn a bit of money, you know, just do a bit Meet of background. So I said, and... yeah, sure, I'll do that, you know. Yeah. Because I love being on set anyway. But um, what I want from the universe is to be winning at least one major role per year. Yeah. From now until I'm in my 80s. Yeah. And how, ma- how many things are being done here in Alberta right now? There are six slated to go this year. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the that's going to be the busiest year we've had probably for about four or five years. And what's the reason for that? I've no clue, but <laughs> I hope it like continues. I hope it continues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, everyone was under the assumption when they built the new studio in Calgary that we were going to be poaching all this work from Vancouver. But it hasn't been the case because I I, I don't know the the uh, the full reasons, but you know I've only heard rumours that they charge too much or the studio's too small or or um, Actra Alberta is kind of like shooting the industry in it in the foot. You know you hear all these rumours, you don't yeah. know exactly what is true, but the fact is that no, we haven't really poached anything from the Vancouver market. And ironically, the producers of Hell on Wheels are now filming shows in BC, in Vancouver. Yeah. Because it's it's so much busier over there. And, and, and the Calgary-based company has now relocated to Vancouver. Ugh. Which sucks. <laughs> yeah. You know? I, I have a theory about Airdrie. Is, uh, we both live out here. Is that yeah. no one that lives in Airdrie is from Airdrie. We're all new. And I think that's yeah. true for a lot of Alberta as well. That yes. we had this massive. So to get people, like people in BC are, I don't want to say clicky, but they're sort of clicky. Like they, they very much stay in their group. They support yes. their group. We're here. Yes. We don't really have a group. We don't mm. really have a, a well-organized because we haven't had the time together like the people in yeah. D.C. has. Yeah. So I think that can be part of it, too. And it's just a matter of, like, even our, our art side, the culture of Alberta is pretty uh, minimal. But yeah. I, there's yeah. there's not that big group, right? You know if you grow up in a neighborhood, at any given time, you're going to run into people you know, and you're, you're all, your joy, days are always filled with happiness, joy, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But when you're the new person in town, you got to go search for it yeah. every day. Try to figure out, you know, where uh, where the next thing is for you. So I think that's well, you a know, big part. You know, Alberta is actually full of people from the East Coast who ran out of money on the way to BC. You know that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <not either. laughs> 
What does uh, BC stand for? Bring cash? It's yeah, so bring cash, yeah. My yeah. nephew is just out here from BC, and he's like, I got to move to Alberta. Yeah. He goes, if I want, he's 20, 20 years old, going to be 21. Right. And he's like, if I ever want to own a house, it's never going to happen in BC. Like, you need a million bucks to own a house in BC. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I heard the same. Lower, I, mean. I heard the same, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know, like, you know, if you were to rent a one-bedroom apartment in Vancouver itself, you're probably talking about two or three grand a month. Damn. You know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, oh, I've lost my thread. I was going to say something, probably a follow-up to that lame joke I made earlier. <laughs> but, uh, the, uh, I don't want to f- miss out on talking about martial arts, too. Cause yes, it's one of, my, of course, my, uh, of course. I haven't had a chance to train in quite a while, just building the podcast and our right, right. clothing line and stuff like that. And I'd, I'd like to get back to it, but I just haven't found the spot yet. Yeah. But you, obviously, uh, fourth damn black belt in jiu-jitsu. Is yeah. that... BJJ or is this? No, it's Goshin Jiu-Jitsu. That's it's the Japanese, Japanese yeah. Jiu-Jitsu, yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, fourth down black belt in, in karate, karate yeah. as well. So yeah. you must have started at an early age. Um, I started when I was in my mother's womb. That's when I started kicking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was pretty young when I started. I've been training uh, longer than a lot of people have been living. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, my, I was, I was very, very spoiled. I mean, my jujitsu instructor was a guy called Billy Doak, okay. and I'm spelling that for anyone: D for Delta, O for Oscar, A for Alpha, K for Kilo. Look him up on YouTube, and then you'll see where I got my techniques from. Uh, he's passed away now. Yeah. Uh, but he was a, a phenomenal, phenomenal jujitsu guy. Um, and what I've done, but the thing about me is, um, uh, I've always looked at martial arts as a buffet lunch. You take a bit from each plate to fill your own plate. I agree. You know, I mean, like in my mind, there are too many people out there who are blinkered (laughs) and they think their style is the only style worth knowing. Yeah. Now I've got some, sorry, that's what's sold in a lot of martial arts though, right? Because people don't want to lose their students. Yeah, that's for fear. That's fear. I mean, like, you know, when, if, if ever my students would say, what's that dojo like down the road? I'd say, well, go and check it out. Right. You know, whereas like I would hear that people say, people would say about my dojo, oh, all they know how to do is fight. You know, once their fighting career is over, they won't be able to do anything. And that was, that was total crap because I still kept hold, even though we did a lot of competitions and we were a competition school, you know, we were a freestyle karate style. Yeah. However, I, I felt it very important because I, I came up through um, um, a more traditional style. Um, and then when I flipped over to freestyle, it was purely to become better, more efficient fighters for competition. Yeah. But I still kept the katas. I still kept the Japanese terminology. I still kept the syllabus. I still kept the grading regime. Yeah. You know, So I thought that was important. Now, going back to jiu-jitsu, um, I asked my sensei once because of course like you know i was already training before hoist gracie won the ufc right and i'm not i'm not saying i'm 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 awesome or anything <laughs> if like anyone that anyone looks back at hoist gracie from ufc one and yeah. they do jiu-jitsu they'd yeah. be like uh yellow bell the best <laughs> <laughs> he, he, well, he was great for the time and yeah. he grew yeah but the sport itself has grown so yeah far. oh absolutely absolutely but what i but uh, but i said because that was the first time i ever had any experience of bjj yeah and i actually said to my my sensei billy doak i said what's what's bjj so he said well essentially it's judo with leg locks yeah 
So I said, well, what do you mean by that? And then he went on to explain, because like he was so not, he was an encyclopedia. And of course, there's a lot of BJJ uh, uh, practitioners out there who are very open-minded, but there's a lot of BJJ practitioners out there who don't know the full story. Mm-hmm. And the full story is that, of course, Helio Gracie and his brother or his cousin or whoever it was, they were actually taught by a Japanese judo guy. Yeah. Who was also... Real Gracie people know this for sure. Right, yeah. Right. The, the Yeah, the real Gracie people and the ones who have delved into it, yeah, they, they have sought out the truth. Yeah. Um, and he was also a no-holds-barred fighter. Mitsu, um, I th- was it a Shiba? Mitsu? No, it wasn't a Shiba, but, but anyway, uh, a Subo or whatever. But yeah, he was a Japanese judo guy. He taught, he was living in Brazil. He taught the Gracies and then they kind of like took it, elaborated on it and founded the Gracie system, the BJJ system. So therefore, in truth, the BJJ system has its roots, its roots came from Japan. Right. Now, a lot of BJJ practitioners don't know that. I know. I can remember I was having an online argument with a guy, and because, like, you know, the ground fighting has always been a big part for me. You know, even though my my Dan grade is in Goshin, which is a defensive jiu-jitsu style, Billy was always very keen on being able to fight on the ground. Yeah. And so, and and I continued that. And, like, you know, once... um, it, it, sorry, is that the bigger dif- biggest difference between Japanese jiu-jitsu and Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Is Japanese jiu-jitsu is more stand-up, there's yeah. more striking. Yes. And the yeah. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is almost trying to get it to the ground. Yes, yes, yes. yeah. But, I mean, what I... Uh, Billy was open-minded enough to realize, you know, you've got to know how to grapple, yeah. you know, because nine out of ten fights end up on the ground, Right. you know? Uh, so, therefore, he was big into the grappling, and I was Southern Regional Grappling Champion. So, you know, I kind of knew my shit. Yeah. Um, and I can remember having uh, an online argument with someone on... I don't, uh, was it Twitter or was it Instagram? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> And he was saying a fourth Dan black belt in Japanese jiu-jitsu has probably got less experience than a blue belt in BJJ. <laughs> you know? Now, uh, I've got... And a f- you couldn't just swallow that and walk away? <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? You know? And, and he was saying, you know, what do you think you're doing teaching BJJ? I said, I'm not teaching BJJ. I'm teaching grappling. He said, there's no grappling in Japanese jiu-jitsu. Uh, and, and like I thought... Who are you? Are you one of these people who's only happy when you are bigging yourself up, when you're putting someone else in a bad light in order to put yourself in a good light? So I ended up thinking, why am I wasting my energy? (laughs) So that was one of the negatives that I just deleted from my life. No fighting online. Yeah, it's it's, it's ridiculous. And, and, you know, I mean, like I was sort of like embarrassed that I got roped into it, but I thought, who is this dick? You know what I mean? I don't know if his name was Dick, but... um, Christopher something or other, I don't know. But but anyway, um, so as I say, uh, the thing is, I think my... My instructor, Billy Doak, said it in its most simplistic but accurate way. BJJ is essentially judo with leg locks. Yeah. Now, um, I think it's a beautiful art. Yeah. And I've got many friends in BJJ, and they are awesome people. And I, ironically, Hicks and Gracie, arguably the best fighter ever. Correct. Um, he is the one that said the mind is like a parachute. It works better when it's open. <laughs> yeah. But you still get a lot of BJJ guys who are blinkered, who don't know the full history, who don't know that it came 
from from Japan originally, who don't know that it's only been around for like seventy years, whatever, yeah. and they think. No, Brazilian uh, BJJ is everything. Traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu has got nothing to offer. Yeah. And I think it's so unfortunate because it's in its original format, Goshin jiu-jitsu included kicks and punches and throws and the ground fighting and pressure points and you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. like you could say Pancration was the first MMA. Yeah. Well, in Asia, you could say that Goshin Jiu-Jitsu was the first MMA. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and people have taken from it and founded other systems. You know, I mean, it's like even Hapkido was kind of founded out of Aikido and uh, karate. Right. You know? Uh, taekwondo is Korean karate. Yeah. Um, as I say, I think it's unfortunate that some BJJ exponents kind of like separate themselves. You know, as I say, I believe, and I'm sure you agree, if you don't, we'll step outside. But <laughs> <laughs> but I believe that, because that, like, you know, Billy taught me so much. However, I would still travel to train with other people whenever I got the chance because I wanted to fill my plate. I wanted to get different outlooks, different opinions, you know, right. and, and different techniques. Um, uh, when I was in England, if ever any guest instructors would come over and do a tour and what have you, I'd always, I'd always travel to, to train with them, you know. So I actually trained under Hoist Gracie. Nice. I actually trained under Henzo Gracie, Frank Shamrock. Not Ken Shamrock, Frank, Frank Shamrock. Shamrock yeah. um, uh, Bass Rutten, Eric Paulson. You oh, know, so I took... Some of the greats. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Uh, so I took from their plate. Yeah. Now, the irony is, and listeners, forgive me, I'm being honest. I'm being honest. <laughs> when I trained under Hoist Gracie, he showed me nothing I didn't already know. Yeah. It was very, 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 very basic. Yeah. However, I think there's two reasons for that. First of all, there were a lot of karate and taekwondo guys there who had no knowledge of the ground game at all. So I think he had to kind of like dumb it down a little bit the for basics, them. Yeah. And secondly, it was off his. It was it was on the shirt tails or the coattails of his his second UFC win. I okay. think so. It was around ninety six, ninety seven, something like that. Yeah. And he was still riding high on the UFC wins. Yeah. Um, and did you hear the story on how he got into the UFC when Hickson was working with the, um, the boxing promoter, can't remember his name right now. Right. They were trying to put this whole thing together because the, they had the Gracie challenge Wasn't and they Don were Don King, was it? No, I can't remember. Bob something. No, it's not coming to me. Uh, but anyways, they're trying to put this all together and then the promoter knew about the Gracie challenge. So he's like, well, you guys have to have someone in there. And Hickson's like, ah, I'll send Hoist. And they're like, the kid that babysits your kids? Like, that's who you're going to... Yeah, he'll do fine. He'll do fine. Yeah. You know, he was not even the best ranked uh, Gracie guy, but yeah. they knew back then that there was no one that understood what they did. Yeah. And I'm sure in Japan there was a whack of people, but it wasn't yeah. happening in Japan. It was yeah. happening yeah. in the US. Yeah. And so they, he was literally living in the room above the garage in uh, Hickson's uh, place, yeah. babysitting kids most of the day and training jiu-jitsu at night. And yeah. then they sent him out to do the fight. And, you know, it's, it's all history from there. But he yeah. had that... Um, the faith in his art so deeply, like pff, we could send anybody. We yeah. just send. Uh, um, I forgot his name already. Who was the first guy? 
uh, well, Hoist. They, they it was Hoist, Hickson, um, uh, Horian. Yeah. You know, Horian. I Henzo. think Horian is, um, yeah, but Henzo's a cousin. Yeah, right. Henzo's yeah. cousin. But Horian, I, I think he's he's older than Hickson, isn't he? Isn't Horian the, the highest ranking BJJ guy now? Well, no, it's Hickson's son, isn't it? Is it? Because yeah. I thought Horian was uh, Horian was like the the highest ranking living BJJ exponent at the moment after his father passed. It's been too long since I've seen it, but Hickson has two sons in California right now, which are running like the largest Gracie club, and they're both um, high level black belts. One right. like Abu Dhabi and and a bunch of tournaments. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what their names were. They put out videos on uh, Facebook, like right, right. they're fantastic, and yeah. they're really about educating people and looking at the whole like the whole situation so they'll do like street breakdowns of these two guys fighting or someone getting attacked and what they did right and what they did wrong and they're super super smart guys mm. and they believe wholeheartedly in jiu-jitsu yeah. but they also believe wholeheartedly in like preserving yourself so, yeah yeah, you know, yeah lots yeah. of jiu-jitsu guys throughout time haven't done a good job of uh, preserving their body, like jiu-jitsu is a hard sport to be of course, in. BJJ of course, is yeah. a hard sport to be in. Yeah, uh, almost all those guys have no shoulders and mm. missing discs in three or four places. It's yeah. it's it's a nasty sport if you're going hard. I I do, as I say. I mean, you know, I've got respect for any art. Yeah, you know, and I and I've got some very close friends in BJJ, and I love BJJ. Um, I just don't like the attitude of some BJJ exponents because they don't give credit where credit is due. Right. You know, yeah. that's the only thing I don't like. Now, another thing I went on to do, even though, and, and once again, this was the open-mindedness of, of Sensei Billy Doak, um, even though we wore the gi, we would rarely, rarely um, make use of the gi. Okay. And, uh, and now I just teach no gi jiu-jitsu because I think to myself... If you do nothing but gi, then you come up against someone who's not wearing a gi, then you could be lost. Yeah. Whereas if you do nothing but no gi and someone's wearing a gi, then, whoa, you've been given a present. <laughs> That's right. Do you know what I mean? A little bit of grip. Well, once again, it's my opinion. We're all entitled to uh, my opinion. I mean, my my suggestion to anyone listening to this would be it's obviously good to be well-versed in both. Right. However... You don't want to, no one wants to rely on just one thing. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, it's like my buddy, uh, he's always going on about the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> and he said, you know, you need an arsenal of tools. You know, you need a long, uh, you need a sniper rifle. Yeah. And then you need a shotgun. And then you need a handgun, and then you need a machete, and then you need a baseball bat kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you can't rely on any one thing. Yeah. Um, so therefore, as I say, I would say to people who are into jiu-jitsu, which is a phenomenal art, yeah. um, if you can become well-versed in and out of the gi, yeah. you know? I've had a few uh, teachers where they told me that you have to learn the gi to be good at the non-gi. And I, I just, I had a hard time buying into that I, one. I, I would I, say it was the other way around. I, I, I sort of feel that way too. And I'm not high enough level to really put my opinion in, but it is just an opinion that uh, everything that I've done when I've rolled with gi guys, mm. I'm not good at using the gi. I'm not good at utilizing the, the handles that they have, mm. but I still roll fine with them. That's 
a guy my level. See, uh, you find a lot of, uh, once again, we're talking opinions here, right. you know, so I'm hoping none of your none of your listeners sort of like stone me if they see me in, <laughs> in Walmart or something. But um, once again, we're talking about opinions. My opinion is there's a lot of stalling in gi grappling. Yeah. You know, you'll just grab hold of each other's sleeves or, or pant legs or lapels and just hold them off you or hold them to you and what have you. Yeah. Um, no gi, you can't do that. Right. You know, you've got to be more active in no gi. Yeah. And as I said earlier on, my opinion is if you're going to do one before you do the other, I would become versed in no gi first. Yeah. Because then... You know how to choke someone out or get an armbar or a leg lock or a heel hook or an Achilles hold, whether they're wearing a gi or not. You right. already learnt how to do that. Yeah. You know, whereas if you've just learned how to, okay, you're going to do a gi choke. Now, now you're going to roll with someone who's not wearing a gi. Oh, shit, he's got no gi. How am I going to choke him without... Do you know what I mean? I totally, I totally agree. So That's as I say, always been my thought process. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always... And, you know, I, I've been in this a lot of years, and I've met a lot of people. I've trained with a lot of people. I've rolled with a lot of people. And, as I say, my opinion will never change. I think it's it's obviously wise to be versed in both. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to concentrate on one before the other or on one full stop, my opinion is that no gi is probably going to be more valid than gi. And the reason I say that is, yes, okay, living in Canada in the winter in the winter months, <laughs> I've yeah, heard this argument every, too. <laughs> everyone's wearing a big heavy jacket in the winter months. Yeah. But in the summer, we get really nice hot weather. Now, right. if I try choking you out with your t-shirt, that's probably going to rip or stretch, and yeah. it's not going to be very effective. Yeah. Whereas if I know how to do a naked choke. You know, whether it is a vertebrae separator, whether it is a face crank, whether it is a rear naked, whether it is a front naked, whatever, I can do it whether you're wearing a t-shirt or wearing your wife's nightgown. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, uh, I'll tell you my first tournament because not many people uh, believe this, but I, I won with a front naked choke. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was a horrible experience for me because I was so nervous. Yeah. My first fight, it didn't click in. It just didn't. We we uh, uh, it was just a jiu-jitsu tournament. We locked up right away, yeah. and both of us just kept pushing back and forth, and no one was yeah, doing yeah, yeah. Out of the uh, like, it was probably three minutes of that, like two and a half minutes of us just pushing back and forth. Yeah. And out of the white noise behind me, I heard my coach go, "For fuck's sake, shoot!" <laughs> and as soon as I heard his voice, I dropped down. I got the double leg, and yeah, then yeah. I ended up getting mounted. I thought, well, he's just staying so defensive yeah. that I'm not getting anything you know you reach for arms and you're trying to you know roll around just see if you can get him to make a mistake yeah and he just wasn't moving, so I thought, well, I'm going to try the front naked choke. So I dig the knuckles in underneath the chin, and I roll up, yeah. figuring he's going to push me off, and I'll grab the arm, yeah. and he tapped. Yeah. And I tell yeah. people that's really like, you can't win with a front naked choke. Well, I, like, I, eh, I did that I'll time. tell you what, I do a front naked choke a different way. Okay. Uh, I do a front naked choke like a rear naked choke, but they're facing me, you know, so I'm going right around, and I'm sort of like locking in here. Oh, yeah. But what I, my, my secret weapon, if you like, is... It'd be I, similar to an Ezekiel then. Uh, similar. Yeah, yeah similar. Okay. Um, my secret weapon is I never hold here. Yeah. I always go right up here because yeah. 
That's the way I was tied too. Sorry. I, 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 oh, yeah, they can see it, but they yeah. can't hear it. <laughs> yeah, so basically I always go as high up here to make that gap as small as possible. Yeah. And then I usually grab here as opposed to on... Back of the head. You know. Yeah. So, so once again, that's making it tighter as well. Yeah. And when I do a front naked, it literally feels like the guy's vertebrae is being separated yeah. and their head is being pulled off their shoulders. And that's uh, that comes with time, right? The, that yeah. squeeze, the, yeah. the strength that comes of doing it over well, well, I'm again. not particularly strong, but my technique makes people think I'm strong. Yeah. You know, because it is. The cleaner the technique, the less power it takes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's about technique. And I've, I always say to my students, because I teach uh, I teach uh, at Airdrie Martial Arts Center, folks. Yes. On a Thursday Bell night at 7 o'clock. But I'm not there for the next two weeks because I am on a set. Um, <laughs> nice, nice. But I will be back... Um, I think I am back there. I'm trying to work it out. I think I'm back there on the, on the 9th of May. Perfect. So if you're watching this and you want to give the Nogi a go, I teach 7 to 8.30 on a Thursday night at the Airdrie Martial Arts Centre by the Superstore in Airdrie. Yes. Anyway, Excellent family that runs uh, the, uh, the class. They are lovely, Vanessa lovely, Lewis. lovely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, what was I talking about before I started blatantly? The, well, actually, I wanted to ask you, uh, we're getting really close to two hours here, oh, okay. so, uh, okay. but I wanted to ask you about the teaching, because I know it's your passion, and you're only yeah. doing it one day a week, from what I yeah. understand. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever think about opening a club and doing that? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll tell you what, I actually opened my own dojo in England in 1989, Okay, and I was teaching karate twice a week, and jiu-jitsu twice a week. Yeah. Um, and I was successful, you know, I don't mean successful like I had schools after schools. I meant my little dojo was quite successful and I rarely got less than double figures. Nice. You know, my average at the karate was like 15 to 20. My average at the grappling or the no gi was 10 to 15. So yeah. I could always keep the lights on. Yeah. You know, I always had enough to pay the rent. However, when I came over here... Uh, because of my, uh, because I didn't know anyone, and because I didn't know what was the best area to set up in, and blah blah blah, and I didn't didn't have spare money for rent and what have you. I just thought it would be easier for me to teach for others. Yeah. So they actually employ me to teach there. I'm only teaching once a week because simply that's the only spare opening they have. They got a full line of classes. But I, there. yeah, they do, uh, and they're very busy. Um, and um. And I some I mean I do I do seminars. I'm a member of the CJJU, is the Canadian Jiu Jitsu Union. Yeah. Um, I do seminars whenever I'm invited to. I just did one a few weeks ago, and there was only two of us that actually got to teach both days. Yeah. Uh, apart from the host, um, I went to Chilliwack in in uh, September, and I was asked to teach there both days, and that's uh, that's awesome because obviously. The chief instructor values what I bring to the table. Right. Um, there's also a couple of clubs down in the south of Calgary who I am regularly invited to guest instruct for. Cool, so, cool. yeah, I just love I I love acting and I love teaching. You know, and if yeah. I could do more of both, then I'd be doing more of both. You know, if the acting was better, would you think about opening a club where it was financially like not having to be a, a um, okay? So when I had my own dojo in England. The good thing is about being an instructor, you've got to be there every lesson. Right. 
But the bad thing about being an instructor is you've got to be there every lesson. <laughs> know. You know, you know, it's easier being a student because, like, even instructors. I mean, the good thing about being an instructor is you will always guarantee that you will keep your technique to a good point. Right. You've got to be teaching them correctly, or else they're going to be crap. Right. And then you think, is it their fault they're crap, or am I teaching them incorrectly? Well, you don't want to be watered down, right? You, no, exactly. When you have a black exactly. belt, it's not going to be the exact same as as what your where you got your black belt yeah. from, right? Yeah. It, yeah. It, it always gets watered down yeah. over time. So, like I say, um, you know, being a, being an instructor, it it enables you to keep your technique at a high caliber. Yeah. Um, but even instructors every now and then come home from work or they're feeling sick or whatever and they oh, I really don't want to go tonight, but I've got to, <laughs> you know? So as yeah. I say, you know, it's it's like a double-edged sword. Yeah. You know, it's got its good and it's bad. So I don't know, even if, uh, or even when money becomes no object, I don't know if I would open my own gym. Yeah. Um. I know a guy, I mean, I've always been passionate about teaching, but I've got a very good friend um, in England, who is the same grade as me? He's a fourth down black belt in Lao Gar Kung Fu, okay. and he's excellent. And he is a former world champion, and blah blah blah. He turned it into a business, and now he's miserable. <laughs> it's 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 become a chore. Yeah. You know, the passion has gone, and now it's like, oh shit, I've got to go to work now. Do you know what I mean? That's unfortunate. And I don't eh? ever want to get to that position. You the, know? Sometimes the greatest fighters don't make the greatest teachers. No. And being no. the best at something doesn't mean you should go into business doing it. That's right. right. That's that is just right. part of the gig. You yeah. know, we're, we're coming up on two hours here, Kevin. Thank you so much for coming. You are awesome. Thanks, um, man. I will uh, share everything with everybody when we're done. Awesome. Is there anything, your, your website, where can people check you out? Um, if people want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram or they want to connect on Facebook, so Facebook is just Kevin Davey. Um, I think I think I've got Airdrie as my uh, city, my home city. Yeah. Um, Instagram is at Davy underscore Kevin, I believe, and Twitter is at Kevin Davy two thousand fourteen. Hey everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. This podcast is over. <laughs>